Welcome to this broadcast of Truth For Today, sponsored by Sun City West Christian Church. I'm your host, Kai Repsolt, and we'll be doing part 33 of our study in the book of Acts today. Uh, And I uh, subtitle the book, The Spreading of the Gospel, because that's primarily what the book of Acts is about. The spreading of the gospel in the early stages of the Christian church. We will be starting in Acts 27, but for the benefit of those who didn't listen to our broadcast last week, uh, let me just briefly summarize where we are in the story of Acts. Paul has been in um, house arrest uh, in Caesarea for two years, thereabouts. Uh, The new governor of Judea, whose name is Festus, was ready to send him up to Jerusalem uh, to be uh, tried there on the charges that the chief priests wanted to bring. Paul recognized that that would lead to an ambush and his death, uh, appealed to Caesar, saying there was no legal precedent and he was a Roman citizen and so only Caesar had the right to finally judge him. And the governor then was forced to make preparations to send him to Caesar, even though the governor knew that uh, Paul had not done anything wrong. Paul presented his uh, his witness to Herod Agrippa, who was the king of uh, Galilee at the time, uh, and he agreed that Paul need not stay under arrest, he could be released because he had not committed a crime, but he, since he had appealed to Caesar, then he had to go. That was Roman law. So that's where we are when we begin chapter 27 of the book of Acts. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustine cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends, and received care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Gnidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, Since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that 
the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only for the, of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. Luke begins the chapter by saying some time passes. He doesn't tell us how much time. Could have been a month, could have been six months, could have been a year, could have been a week. Don't know. But at the end of that period of time, Paul and other prisoners who are bound for Italy are put under the charge of a centurion whose name was Julius. And he was a member of the Augustan cohort. Now, I want to give you an understanding of the importance that was placed on the governor, on Paul, that he would turn him over to a centurion from the Augustan cohort. A cohort is a Roman military unit, and it um, comprised of about 560 men, plus their officers. And um, there are six cohorts in, um, in a Roman legion. And they're usually numbered, identified by number. So if this was the fourth legion, and it was the third cohort, it would be numbered the third of the fourth. However, if a cohort in one of the legions performed to, sub, and to a very exceptional level, both by bravery and by effectiveness, that cohort would be given a name, and it would be considered an elite unit. So the fact that Ju the centurion was a member of the Augustan cohort meant that he was a member of an elite unit. He had a significant military reputation. And on top of that, based on his name, Julius, we know that he was of the clan of the Julii, the same clan or family that Gaius Julius Caesar was a member or had been a member. So who the man who we call Julius Caesar, uh, his full name was Gaius Julius Caesar. Most Romans had three names. Their uh, personal name. So in the case of Caesar, his personal name was Gaius. There were very few personal names that were used. The pool of names was small. So many people had the same personal name. The name Julius is the family name. For most people in Western Europe, 
then Julius would be like your, quote, last, unquote, name. The name that identifies what family to, to what family you belong. And then they would have one last name. In the case of Julius Caesar, it was Caesar. <clears throat> and that was a nickname. And it was usually assigned, could be assigned at birth, but might be assigned early in life. Uh, and uh, it was usually uh, identified by some attribute, physical attribute. So in the case of Gaius Julius, Caesar meant he had a thick head of hair. And he may have, as a boy, had a thick head of hair, which was how he got that name. And uh, there were other nicknames similar to that, like Rufus. Rufus, as a nickname for a Roman, meant that your hair was red. So the important thing here is that the governor put Paul and these other prisoners, but distinctly Paul, in, in the charge of a very responsible professional military man. Because he valued Paul. And they sailed north and west along the coast of modern-day Turkey, which was called the province of Asia in the Roman Empire. They stopped for an overnight in this city of Sidon, and the centurion gave Paul freedom to visit the Christians there. The centurion re respected Paul. He understood that Paul was not guilty of any crimes, that he was a political prisoner. And so he had no fear of Paul fleeing. So when they got to the edge of the coast of Turkey, they changed ships on a ship that was headed for Italy. But the season for travel to the west was gone. The prevailing winds at this season of the year, which is in the winter, late fall, winter, come from the west and the northwest, and they were not advanced enough in their rigging of sails to be able to sail into the wind. So they struggled, and Luke records in some detail how they were struggling. So they are on the south coast of the island of Crete looking for a safe harbor for the winter until the winds will become favorable again, generally speaking, and then they can make their way all the way to Italy. Paul provides a prophetic warning. Uh, he warns that the cargo will be lost. He warns that the ship will be lost, and he fears that everybody's lives will be lost if they continue on their voyage and don't stop for the winter. But no one listens to him. The majority decided to press on because they got a south wind. They didn't know how it was going to last, but they got a south wind, and they wanted... They thought they could make it to their final wintering port in the far western part of the island of Crete. So they went for it. And Paul continues his account in verse 14, or at least Luke does. 
But before very long, there rushed down from the island a violent wind called the Rakilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clodia, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in that way let themselves be driven along by the wind. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice, and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong, and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore keep up your courage, men, for I believe God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that if they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, and a little farther on they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes and the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 267 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it, if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow struck 
fast and the remaining and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them could swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and some on various other things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. So, in this portion, we see that Paul's initial prophecy comes to fulfillment. It's important for us as believers to not always accept the majority point of view. Paul was a prophet. And he was given special insight by God. And even though he was only one person, they should have listened to him. But they were not all believers, and so they listened to their own earthly counsel, which, in the normal course of events, would have been sufficient. But in this case, they should have listened to Paul. Paul, however, does not hold it against them. Just as Paul predicted, the cargo and equipment went overboard. They were working so hard, and and the seas were so rough, they were unable to eat, and they were driven before the wind. Unable to navigate, because they did not know where they were, because they couldn't see the sun or the stars. Now, uh, Paul says to the people, he doesn't say, I told you so. Okay, Close, but he doesn't say, I told you so. What he does is he offers them hope because he has received hope himself. And the source of his hope is God. God sent an angel messenger. The angel told him that the ship would be lost, but everyone would survive because God intended Paul to be in Rome and testify to Caesar. And because the other 266 people on the ship were with Paul, God had provided for them to be alive through this, tra this tragic shipwreck as well. So he encourages them and tells them about the visit, promises that no one will die. Now the sailors try to escape. They obviously didn't believe Paul. And Paul warns the centurion. And the centurion stops the seaman from escaping because the centurion has learned to believe Paul. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, or fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. There was going to be no shame on the centurion for being fooled twice. Sure enough, the next morning the ship runs aground, close to a bay on an unidentified island. The ship begins to break up, and... The standard procedure, which the soldiers are planning to follow, is if there's a threat that the, there's a good probability that the, a prisoner will escape, since if a prisoner escapes while in your custody, your life is forfeit, then the default is if it looks like there could be some prisoners escaping, then the soldiers will kill all the prisoners 
so as not to be having their own lives forfeit. But again, the centurion wants to preserve Paul's life, so he orders them not to follow the standard procedure, and he gives advice, and it's good advice, on how to abandon the ship, and everybody makes it to shore, just as the angel promised. Luke continues his account in chapter 28. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed, an extraordinary, showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. So the island is Malta. Turns out that Malta is about 500 miles from their starting point off the island of Crete. That's a long way to go in a storm. Paul was bitten by a viper, which is a highly poisonous snake, which all the people, local people recognized. So they were expecting him to die. They also came to the common conclusion that because this bad thing had happened to Paul, that he must be an evil man. That is not God's scriptural point of view, and if you want a detailed discussion of that, you can find that in the book of Job. Paul is unaffected by the snake bite, and so the people begin to think of him as a god. Now, this has happened to Paul before, um, and um, in, in those cases, he testifies very strongly that he is not a god, that he is, in fact, a human. Uh, we don't hear of that here. Perhaps they didn't make any outward expression of their belief that he was a god. Uh, the leading man of the island, Publius, provides hospitality to, the scripture says, to us. Most probably that would include Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, who was a Christian from Thessalonica who was traveling with him, and the centurion Julius. Paul discovers that Publius' father is seriously ill and dying. And Paul prays for him, and God heals Publius' father through Paul. And the people of the island hear about this, and they bring all their sick on the island to Paul, and 
these sick people are all healed. As a result, the people, the I are so grateful for the blessings that they have received because of the presence of Paul that they've been showing great respect and thankfulness. And at the, at, when it was springtime and the favorable winds became normal, they supplied the needs of the entire 267 people. That would have meant that everything that they had lost in the shipwreck that they needed was replaced by the people of the island. Additionally, the people of the island provided sufficient funds to hire a ship to take them on to Italy. The people... Uh, so God looked out through special providence, through his blessing of Paul for all the people who were with Paul. So, think about this. If you are a Christian and are following the Lord, recognize that if you are being obedient to God and following him, that in God's desire to bless you and to allow whatever it is he wants to accomplish through you to happen, that it is, it is quite possible that, like with Paul, he will extend his providential care to the people immediately surrounding you, and they will derive a blessing because God is blessing you. Last, I want to make sure that you understand that uh, adversity, difficult times, is not a mark of God's displeasure. It is not... It's not punishment for being evil. Uh, the scriptures make it quite clear that God treats us not that way. And uh, we could be, as Job and Paul, both of whom were innocent of any serious crime on human standards, were going through severe adversity. Not because they had done something evil, but because God had a purpose for them to go through that adversity. And in this case, in Paul's case, it was for the extension of the gospel to the people of Malta, who many, I'm sure, having had been cured or had their family members cured of diseases, Paul shared the power and the, and the gospel with them. And I'm consider, I would say that a good number of them would have become Christians as a result of Paul's ministry. And Paul had to endure that hardship in order to get to Malta, in order for God to use him to bring the people of Malta to himself. And that's the end of our lesson for today. Uh, that's not the end of the live portion of this meeting. There's another 30 minutes where we discuss what's in the lesson, answer and ask questions. And if you are living in the area of Phoenix, Arizona, or are visiting and would like to participate in the live portion of this meeting, where we make the discussions and ask and answer questions, feel free to join us at Sun City West Christian Church at 9.30 on Sunday morning in Sun City, West Arizona. God bless you all.